2: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlatnik, And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio. It's Friday, March 17th, 2017. This is episode 452 and this week we are happy to announce that Bill Turner, Bill uh, uh, Turner Building Science and Diagnostics is going to be joining us for the hour. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
2: IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's j o n d o n.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
1: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
2: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C. Zlotnick at CS.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Congratulations
3: to Doug Conan. Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, March 17, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Name the U.S. Park Service program that supports the preservation of traditionally built architecture in the western United States, facilitates facilitates the perpetuation of traditional skills, and promotes connections between culturally associated communities and places of their heritage.
1: Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Today we've got William Bill Turner. He is the CEO of Turner Building Science and Design out of Harrison, Maine. Bill has over 35 years of experience in the implementation of moisture, indoor air quality, HVAC, energy, and engineering diagnostic programs around the country. He and Turner Building Science are widely held as leaders in the building science, energy, and IAQ arenas. In addition to his work with Turner Building Science, he has contributed to the U.S. EPA Indoor Air Quality Guide and has served as an advisor for several other documents. He has also published and lectured widely on the topics we're going to discuss today. Good day, Bill. Do we have you on the line? You have me on the line. Oh, yeah. Great to have you. We're looking forward to it. I'm, I'm wondering, the are you going to be speaking this year at the Northeast IAQ and Energy Conference sponsored by the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council? I am. That's the plan. A half-day workshop. Oh, great. What is that on Tuesday or, or Wednesday? Uh, it's on
0: Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. First half of the
1: day. Great. And what will we be talking about?
0: uh indoor air quality and energy conservation and large buildings
1: great i hope i hope i can make that i think i'll be i'll be there for the event and i'll, I'll try and sit in for your presentation um i also you know you, you've been doing this type of work for over 30 years now I'm, I'm so glad we were able to get you on the job what what I guess let's start off with kind of trends that you see in in this area of IAQ, energy, building science. What what are the most satisfying trends you see?
0: I would have to say, uh, in my opinion, over the years, the whole concept of mechanical ventilation and the need to maintain it is a lot more prevalent today than it was back in the late 70s, early 80s compared to now
1: and being in a, a rather cold climate up in Maine I bet that was a bit of a tough sell for, for your group um, early on
0: well I actually think it's still a bit of a tough understanding for uh, home builders that uh, that when you tell them to make a home tight and then put the right holes in it and fans to ventilate it correctly some of them still scratch their heads
1: I guess until it becomes a requirement in code which is slowly happening um, and maybe you want to comment on that it's it's always going to be a challenge.
0: Yeah, I, you know as uh, I assume most of your listeners know codes minimum behavior so if you're on top of things you've known for a long time that mechanical ventilation is what you need in a residential dwelling that's built with sheetrock and plywood and other Components that make it snug, and uh, you know, codes that finally get around to telling you that you need to make it tight in, ventilate it correctly. And I'm wondering, uh, what, assuming, assuming your state has adopted the latest code,
1: that's been an issue here in Pennsylvania. We're pretty far behind on those on, on adopting things. But I'm wondering what the most disappointing trend you have seen in these areas is.
0: I would say there are two that come to mind. Uh, one is the, that you can now put unvented heaters in most buildings today because of industry lobbying efforts that have allowed that to happen. So the public health guidelines that used to require most things to be vented, uh, so you didn't breathe combustion fumes, have gone by the wayside in most states, and many states allow them now. The other concern I have is the current thought that someone wants to actually trash the Energy Star program, which to me has been a wonderful gift to all of us for um, reducing long-term costs. And the IAQ Plus Guidelines in Energy Star Homes is probably one of the best guidelines anyone's ever come up with.
1: I'm glad to hear you say that. I I teach some of these courses, and that's one of the programs we really like to emphasize, The the... Energy Star program and the Indoor Air Plus program, I think they've been uh, very helpful over the years, and now DOE, I guess, has taken on a lot of that work as well, and uh, through the Build America program and others. Do you you work much with DOE these days?
0: I don't do a lot of work with DOE, but I praise their uh, Net Zero Energy Ready Homes program and uh, everything they're doing along that line um some of us have known how to build high efficiency homes and taught folks how to do that for 30 years but it's becoming far more mainstream now between net zero ready and passive house you got a lot of people realizing for not a lot more money they can deliver a great product to the homeowner and um, it will be cost effective to operate and healthy
1: well you were a principal author on what I consider to be one of the most important documents on indoor air quality that, that's ever been developed. I, I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but we'll find out. The U.S. EPA Building Air Quality Guide, uh, I believe it was a guide for building owners and facility managers. It continues to be a great document. Um, what was the impetus behind EPA developing that document?
0: It's a fascinating question that I've had to do some thinking about. And uh, what comes to mind is there was a group of us somewhere meeting, Terry Brennan, um, Ed Light, myself, Joe may have been present. Um, and I think somebody asked, could you write a guideline for building owners and facility managers? Did you guys reach consensus on what to tell people these days? That was like back in the early 90s after we had survived the 80s of uh, tightened up buildings with poor ventilation, and I, I think our answer was, yeah, we could do that. So I think someone gave us an opportunity to try, and NIOSH then adapted it and adopted it, and, and I still think it's a very applicable document to help people figure out what it is that isn't going on in their building. Who
1: Who were the other authors that assisted with writing that?
0: I haven't gone back to look in the And an introduction and pulled a notebook off my shelf. I know Terry Brennan and Ed Light were two other authors. I'm guessing there were more.
1: Okay. And as I understand it, that document was later included in the IBEAM, the IAQ Building Education Assessment Model Program, and that continues to be on the EPA website. Um, Were you involved in the update of that program and, and I guess at this point, what do you think needs to be beefed up even more? I think that was 2003 maybe that came out.
0: Yeah, Joe, I haven't spent a lot of effort on that and don't have an answer for you. Um, You may have prompted me to go back and look at it to understand myself what may need to be beefed up, but I haven't looked at that material in quite a while, so I don't have a factual answer that I can share with you.
1: Understood and appreciated. Um, Since about 2000, I guess, with the Ballard case and some others, mold has been a topic that, you know, when people think about indoor air quality, a lot of people think about mold. Um, In your experience, is there too much emphasis on mold and not enough on other IAQ topics, or do we have it just about right now?
0: I think it's a really great topic. I, I think... In some ways, it's unfortunate that the focus is on mold and not the cause of the moisture that's driving the mold because most folks have been trained fairly well today on how to clean up a mold mess without making the mess bigger than they started with. But I'm not sure how many folks understand how to figure out where that moisture came from and not have it come back again. And I suppose the good side of that is it's part of what drives our work Uh, Where other people have failed, we get a chance to figure out what the root cause is. But certainly additional training in building science and diagnostics related to moisture would be helpful to the industry.
1: You know, that's something that I've always wondered about. There's, There's training on mold and mold remediation, and there's some training on indoor air quality, and... Not a whole lot on building science, except in like conferences with, like you'll be doing with um, main IAQ council and others. Have have you noticed over the years anybody trying to put together a building science program and getting it out to the masses?
0: Great question. Um, Probably, as you would be aware, the Building Science Corp website and the materials they've developed for the build america program uh, are some of the best materials and best training that exist on the planet um so i'm not aware of anyone's effort to mass educate building science um but uh, are you folks by the way aware of anything
1: well i I guess one of the things i wanted to also, ask you while we're on the mold building science kind of topic, what what other IAQ issues do you think get don't get enough attention?
0: I actually think that as we make tighter homes and understand pollutant loadings better, if people are actually following the ventilation guidelines, that's pretty good. The, the latest guidelines actually require you to exhaust have a, a hooded exhaust above. A cooking area, which would be the what I would call the forefront of what's left to deal with in homes. The fact that you can put a a microwave above a kitchen stove and not have exhausted to the outdoors is a puzzle to me. Um, I assume it has to do with the convenience of installing the appliance. Um, that you can retrofit it to exhaust to the outside, but it doesn't necessarily come. Uh, with instructions on you to to do that, unless I've missed something lately. And uh, we well, you know when you take care of unvented combustion appliances and some of the other funny things people can do in homes that what you burn on the stove or cook probably has a lot to do with what your exposure is.
1: You know, no. I, I, I've become more aware of that actually in the last couple of years, because we've done some show shows on um, low-cost sensors. As a result, I have a few that sit on my desk here. I've got a spec that came out of CMU. I've got the Fubot, which we, we did a show on not long ago, and that led me to, you know, I, I always knew that there was particulate generated and obviously some VOCs as well when you cook, but it didn't really strike home, even with someone that does indoor air quality, until I saw it. And I know you've worked with the um, Roxas program reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces with Linda Wigginton, who we had on a show here not too long ago and I'm wondering what what kind of things did you learn from that program that you'd like to pass along to listeners
0: oh I think there's some fast fantastic and fascinating learnings from that program I mean we've we've owned you know three to five thousand dollar laser particle counters for 20 plus years and now you can get the equivalent of the low cost option of that for what three or 400 bucks at most and it tells you when you're generating fine particles that end up in the depths of your lungs um and when people see that counter taken off like a rocket because they uh burnt something on the stove, or they lit a candle, they, so they go, oh, what am I doing to myself? Between uh, fine particle measurements that's cheap, and, and you can buy a carbon dioxide monitor now for, what, $130, and it works. Uh, you can buy the, the, the radon detector that I bought a year ago for $400. Someone showed me at the workshop last week, and they went on the Internet. They could buy it for $160. So... Wow. Pretty amazing what we've got packaged today that will give you real, essentially, real-time readout on on your behaviors.
1: And even though it's maybe not as accurate as your thirty-five hundred dollar, uh, you know, particle counter, are, are there ways you can see that IAQ consultants and remediation professionals could put these low-cost sensors to use?
0: Well, if they don't. Own anything that's equivalent. Certainly, being able to do show and tell while they're on site in somebody's building would be a very useful um, activity, in my opinion. The uh, my experience with a building owner is that if you can, you know, show them with an instrument um, what's going on, that it's 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 a learning opportunity. Uh, it's no different than a picture's worth fifteen hundred words. Um, so, I think, that, I think low cost stuff that's at all reasonable and accuracy is a great potential teaching tool as well as educational tool for a consultant.
1: And, Cliff, before I go on, go ahead. I know you have a follow up. Yes. Uh, I, I, I do. Uh, you know,
3: one of the things I've struggled with my whole life, Bill, is. I guess what you'd call an expanded drawing, like it when you're putting together a bicycle for your kid for Christmas time and you got all these parts and it tells you which order in which, you know, the parts go in. And I look at all these manuals and, and they have building science drawings and they, uh, you know, show the different components that, you know, will be utilized in building systems and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, you said a picture is worth a thousand words. When I see that drawing, in all honesty, I don't relate to it. When I do see uh, a meter like you were talking about where uh, you know, the, it, it measures the particles in the air, I can see that. When I do see photographs at a presentation like you make where you're explaining where the faults are uh, and you can see you know, moisture that's gone through the brick or you can see the different damages that, that, that it's caused, uh, you know, I, I, I get it. I'm just not so sure about, and you know, you were talking about people not understanding, uh, you know, about, you know, tightening buildings and, and where to put the appropriate holes. And, you know, my diagnosis for that is I think a lot of people are like me and just have difficulty looking at those drawings. But when it's shown to them practically, I think they get it. So I just Wanted to put in my uh, my two cents.
0: You know, I think your two cents is is very applicable. I mean, look today you can buy what an infrared imaging device for what three hundred bucks, and I got two that cost ten grand. Yep. <laughs> so for when you know to say here's the heat coming out. By the way, oh, oh there's your the the heat you just put in your house coming out the air leak. You know, pretty amazing tools for helping someone understand what's going on, Uh, that we just didn't have the low-cost version of that ten years ago, even five years ago.
1: It's been quickly changing. I think another thing that that gives people the opportunity to do is to leave one of these sensors in somebody's home and and get more of a long-term look at what's going on in, in someone's home or building. I would imagine you've done that with you know things like the hobo meters and others, um, but I'm wondering how important you feel that longer term look at things is as opposed to you know when we go out and we do an investigation, you're there for maybe two, three, four hours. I assume that's been a big part of what you do at Turner.
0: Yeah, Joe. Typically, the folks who find us um, have been through somebody else already, and they're unsatisfied so classically uh, our challenge is to figure out what what truly is going on what's the root cause and, and the hard part is uh, how do we tell someone to cost effectively fix this and 99% of the time what I'd love to see is some data over time that sh- that, that I can then look at and say hey here's what's going on here's when it happens uh, it's pretty conclusive what's causing this Uh is the best way to fix it. And so anytime you can collect real-time ongoing data, whether it's particles or carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide or radon or whatever, uh, it, it, it leads the investigator to a potential solution compared to one point in time.
1: We... Um... We, you know, we're talking a lot about particles, and we we've done some shows. We did one on PM 2.5 and health, which was after the EPA uh, sponsored conference that was done at the National Academy of Science. I noticed that you uh, spoke at a seminar called "Focus on Particulate Matter: Health Impacts, Standards, Monitoring, and Building Level Mitigation," and that uh, you discussed current best practices for lowering the lowering the concentration of particulate matter in buildings I wonder if you could give listeners some some quick tips on what you talked about during that presentation and what what are some of the ways that people can lower the particulate matter in their buildings
0: happy to do that Um, that's actually a webinar and it's at the raucous website uh, as one of their recorded webinars so someone can actually go look at it and see what we're talking about Classically, in a home, if it's got some kind of air handling device, you can retrofit it with a 4-inch thick pleated uh, Merv 11 filter, and now you've got a air cleaning device for the whole home, um, and that's affordable to do. In new construction, you can simply ask, hey, can you leave a space for a 4-inch filter in my furnace and air conditioning unit so i can put a four inch filter in there instead of a one or two inch filter i as you may be aware have uh, a couple of homes on the thousand home challenge website one's the one i live in it's it's uh, under case studies and it's called a main antique and it doesn't have a central air handler it has a couple of mini split p pumps uh, wood stove for backup and a propane boiler for backup. So I'm left with, Whoa, what can I do in this house to keep the air clean with two cats and um, historically two dogs and two kids? Hmm. So historically that's been used some kind of portable air cleaning device. The Austin Air is the one that I've had running for probably 15 years now uh, in that home. One in my son's bedroom that seems to be allergic to stuff, whether he grew up with it or not, so he gets like four changes an hour at night in his bedroom that's being cleaned, and one in the hallway upstairs where the bedrooms are that runs at night, which gives you like two air changes per hour cleaning at night, so with combined with some HEPA-filtered vacuum cleaners for the first floor, I attempt to reduce the amount of dust you're going to see in that beam of sunlight when it comes through the window at just the right angle and you go, "Oh, look at all the dirt in my air." Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what you mentioned a wood burner and it, it's interesting to me because I have a similar home in in the mountains of Pennsylvania and I'm I'm getting ready to put in the mini split, but uh we also, you know, we burn some wood. and I noticed in your your CV, you've done some evaluation of wood burning on indoor environments. What what kind of tips would you give people that that do use a wood burner from time to time or a fireplace? What kind of tips would you give them for keeping particulate levels down?
0: From my own experience, um, if you smell wood smoke when you walk into a home that has a wood-fired combustion device, something's not working right. There should not be a lingering wood smoke odor in somebody's home unless somehow the emissions are getting inside the home. And as you may know, it's like tobacco smoke. You've got partially burnt tars and organics on these particles that continue to outgas odor when they're deposited on surfaces. So a a dead giveaway you need to do something different is when it smells like wood smoke in a home that has a wood-burning appliance in it. In some wind regimes... People suffer from downdrafting, from the wind actually blowing down the chimney and, uh, when it's not being fired um, heavily. And they make um, wind directional caps that can go on a chimney to help it actually exhaust better when the wind's blowing across it. I had never experienced a downdraft until the blizzard of this past Tuesday when we had 30 and 40 mile an hour winds and a blinding snowstorm. So I built a wood stove fire in case the power went out so my house wouldn't be cold. And I came down the stairs and said, oh, wood smoke. And I opened the door of the wood stove, which is still lightly burning, and got a big puff of smoke into the house as the wind blew because obviously the geometry was not desirable at the time. (laughs) And the wind was actually blowing the hot air down the chimney and out the wood stove. So... In high wind areas, most folks go to some kind of a device on top of the chimney that'll help suck those combustion fumes out. The other obvious thing is that anyone who's got any kind of combustion in their house should have smoke alarms and CO alarms, so that if something goes wrong, they know before it's hazardous.
1: I've also, I, I, what kind of ventilation do you have in your home? Do you do you have a, a separate ventilation system, or you haven't been able to put that in because of the the way it's constructed.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, Joe. You'll eventually learn that I do all kinds of things to myself before I do them to someone else. So <laughs> okay. I, I have a twenty-year-old um, solar hot air intake system on the top of the roof that is set up with some temperature sensors that say when it's warmer than seventy, coming out of this thing, blow the air into the house. As a makeup air system, when, and uh, that t- tends to be when it's warmer than 45 outside, because the stack effect isn't good enough in the house to give me enough ventilation air, even though I got a bunch of exhaust fans. Every bathroom and kitchen hood has fans on it. Um, one time, I tried an automatic sensor on the kitchen hood that, that would turn on whenever you got some heat going on the stove, but. That was an experiment that manufacturers actually tried at one point, but um, you can't buy an automatic turn-on exhaust hood on a stove that I know of at the moment. Any of your listeners find them wrong, please correct us. Um, My house is unfortunately in '81 when I first rebuilt this house. I had some. Gentleman with gray hair tell me don't make the house too tight it has to breathe and i so i've suffered with for for 30 plus years now trying to make the house tighter so that when the wind's blowing 40 miles an hour it's not too cold so i've dense packed walls that were insulated with fiberglass a second time and i've got two feet of cellulose over the 12 inches of fiberglass in my attic and i'm down to something like four air changes per hour at 50 pascals and i've put co2 monitors and data loggers in the house and with two of us living there i know the co2 level never goes above about 600 parts per million so i've monitored to make sure there's adequate ventilation on the other hand uh one of my engineers, Steve Caulfield, I believe, who you've interviewed in the past, yes. just retrofitted an air-to-air heat exchanger in his 20-year-old house, because when he monitored CO2 with three people living there, he learned that they didn't have good ventilation, so he added a air-to-air heat exchanger in the basement and runs it all the time to get the ventilation level up where it should be.
1: Let me... Th- Cliff, do you want to ask another question before we go to halftime or or jump to halftime? Well, I I just, you know, while we were talking about,
3: you know, uh, Bill was talking about insulation and so on and so forth, um, you know, I noticed on the website, you know, there was a mention of spray polyurethane foam insulation, and I just wondered whether or not you're an advocate for
0: it or could comment on it. How long an answer would you like? (laughs) Well,
1: as long as you want.
0: so let's talk about what I think I know about two-part spray poly foam insulation as a material. Uh, I don't think there's a better material to put on a rock wall basement that's fairly well drained to get to make that basement warm and dry. Wonderful material. Uh, in the state of Maine, you have to put a um, ignition barrier over it or it's illegal to install it in the house. And that's probably a smart thing to do with any material that when it burns is nasty stuff. It, as a material, you folks know as well as I, it's it's site-blended chemicals, so they have to be blended at the right pressure and the right rate and at the right temperature and applied to the materials in the right manner. So if you got a, a contractor who's used to spraying polyfoam for the past 10 years, and the and the crew is used to doing it correctly, and they follow quality control procedures. When you're done, you end up with a material that doesn't stink. You can hit it with a hammer, and the hammer bounces off, and everybody should be happy with the end product. If it's stuck to the material you're trying to get it to stick to, and you got a wonderful insulation system that assumes you were running a, a ventilation fan in the space so that the chemicals didn't get adsorbed into the other materials around while you were spraying it before it reacted. So, wonderful material. Um, done wrong. <laughs> done wrong so it's brittle when you hit it with a hammer and it shatters or cracks and did it stink, stick to anything? Or done wrong so it's. Gooey and smells. Uh, a lot of unhappy people at the end of a job that ends up that way. Uh, now, and by all circumstances, you want to avoid a job ending up that way because it's not good, not easy to fix. How
1: do you, how do you tell consumers? I mean, you mentioned having a contractor that's been doing it for ten years and knows what they're doing. Is there any other recommendation you can give a consumer? For hiring the right spray foam contractor, uh, you have
0: to tell me. Is there an industry guideline I can refer to? I, I with any new product, the, the answers you'd like to have is you know, where's your list of happy clients, and and who can I talk to, and are you trained and certified in applying the product? in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions and show me the proof of that. And is the guy actually doing the spraying uh, trained by someone who knew what they were doing and is the foreman in charge of the job um, trained and, you know, on and on and on. We actually do uh, audits for the Air Barrier Association of America unspray foam jobs and there's a set audit procedure for uh, going on site and figuring out if the two-part spray foam is stuck to the underlying substrate and if it's installed correctly into the right depth etc etc so adaa has guidelines on how to install foam on commercial jobs i don't I'm not familiar with what guidelines might exist other than manufacturers' recommended procedures for residential jobs. I, th-
1: that's, that's, I think that's a good summary of, the, of, of how, what to look for in a spray foam contractor. Um, before we go on, Bill, we, we've got to stop and pay some bills and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with the second half of our interview. We've got Bill Turner, uh, Turner Building Science and Diagnostics.
2: IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers, feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, WolfSense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are... Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com.
1: All right, we're back. Second half of our interview, we've got Bill Turner and uh, Bill, we we were talking a little bit about energy and energy efficiency and and uh, insulation back during the '80s and I guess even the late '70s when the first energy crisis hit. We were you know tightening up a lot of homes and buildings around the country and actually all through North America here and. A lot of mistakes were made, you know as as will happen when you have a new program out and um I'm wondering if you would agree that we're we're doing a better job this time around, and what types of mistakes you still see being made that you would like to see make less often?
0: Oh, well, I think we're doing a wonderful job now because of the guidelines that exist um for crews on how to do safety checks when they're done and and um we understand most crews, I think, doing weatherization today, understand that the mission is to tighten the building up and make sure when they're done the appliances still work uh, the way they're supposed to. And there's great guidelines on how to check those out with uh, combustion safety checks, which goes a long way to beyond what we knew and trained people for 30 years ago. Um I guess I would have to say at the moment that probably the whole kitchen exhaust thing is still a concern, you know, I, I go into homes where people think they're doing fine and they've got a gas stove with no hood over it and they cook a lot of spaghetti and um, I actually have a paper that I published on carbon monoxide exposure to Mountaineers on McKinley back in the 80s. and. When you put a cold pot on top of a flame, it produces carbon monoxide because you're quenching the flame. (laughs) It's the same thing that goes on in a car engine, which is why we put catalytic converters on them to oxidize the CO to CO2. So the issues haven't changed. Um, At one time, people considered making gas top ranges that didn't um, have nice blue flames, but... have never been marketed, uh, which might have
2: been
1: safer. And and there's a document from the US EPA called Healthy Indoor Environmental Protocols for Home Energy Upgrades. I I don't recall if you were a part of writing that or if I just picked it up somewhere on your your CV, but uh, do you know how long that document has been out, and can you tell listeners about some of the key points of that document?
0: Oh, it's been out for, I think it was finally released in November of 2011 after months of wrangling over what we could and couldn't say in the document, with US EPA, it's a, a wonderful piece of work that hasn't gotten a heck of a lot of press. It basically tells you the assessment technique for figuring out what's going on in a house and the minimum corrective action and gives you expanded actions that you might take if someone's got a budget that would allow you to do it. It came out about the same time as DOE was promulgating work practice guidelines for weatherization crews to get them all on a similar page as the the performance of a house when you're done. EPA's actually in the process of, they've got one for schools now, um, called the IAQ Planner which again looks at if you're going to change, make renovations to a building, what do you need to think about with regard to indoor air quality?
1: Cliff, let me turn it over to you, see if you had any other for the first part of the interview here. No, uh, n- not for the first
3: part. You know, I have certainly some for the second part,
1: though. Okay, let us let let me just ask one more question before we move on to some of the ones that Cliff developed here. and And I'm wondering what... You know, you you've, you're at the forefront of this indoor air quality, building science world. What do you see as emerging issues beyond the kitchen exhaust ventilation? Obviously, that's a big one. What other emerging issues do you see related to indoor air quality or building science that uh, listeners should be aware of? Yeah, wonderful question.
0: The um, I'm always suspicious as new. Products come out that are a new blend of chemistry as to what's coming down the line that we didn't expect to be coming down the line. Whether it's drywall that stinks because it was made with materials that ended up causing a problem, or ceiling tiles that smell when it gets humid because it was made with materials that no one expected to be a problem. So I'm assuming in this man made materials world is always going to be stuff come down the line that is a surprise that someone didn't think about um or that quality control wasn't perfect enough to keep from ending up with a product that has some drawbacks so that would be the what's coming down the line that i'm not even aware of at the moment answer because um, it hasn't come out yet um We know from some data that's out there that any time you mix toner and a high-temperature lamp together that you end up burning off styrene and a ton of fine particles when you print or process documents, and, you know, the Australians have some pretty good data on that, or we seem somewhat oblivious to it in this country, if you... If you go to the typically like Xerox's website, you'll see that they recommended that machine be put in a room and exhausted to the outdoors um, for exactly those reasons. But I'm not sure the consumer understands that they've got a little industrial process in a box when they're
1: printing a document. Do you do you hear any uh get any inquiries about like flame retardants on you know couches and, and beds and whatever else?
0: Not one of my expertise, Joe. Great question. Um don't have a lot of expertise. Uh I see a lot of it in the news, but we haven't dealt with it at this
1: point. I guess the other emerging thing you mentioned copiers and, and, and uh printers and so on any experience with the 3d printing
0: no but great question uh, it would be fun to set up a 3d printer and some instrumentation and see what happens haven't done that uh, and don't have any clue if someone else has done it if they've done it and written about it I haven't seen it but uh, asking a wonderful question and certainly 3d printing is not gone away it's rumored to have some wonderful opportunities for uh, potentially all kinds of things, including medical devices and heart valves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, a a material that says miracle is carbon fibers, which, you know, I I now, through the efforts of my son, own a a bicycle that's got carbon fibers in, in it for strength and lightweight, and Great stuff until you drill a hole in it or machine it. Um, yeah. As we know, the the fibers themselves behave more like asbestos than fiberglass. So, uh, machining carbon fiber materials is probably a risky thing to be doing without uh, protection.
1: Bill, I'd like to turn it over to Cliff here. Uh, he he put some. You know, he looked at your website and put together a couple of I thought very interesting questions, and then. Uh, I think one of them may have to do with this presentation, too, on advanced indoor air quality diagnostics in buildings with suspected disease. Uh, Cliff, if you don't get to that one, I would definitely like to jump in on that one. But, Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Okay. Well,
3: uh, Joe, I'll let you ask that one. Uh, One of the things I found on your website that I'd never heard about and I just thought it was a, a wonderful idea is if you could tell our listeners, what is the Vanishing Treasures
0: training program? <laughs> yeah, Vanishing Treasures is one of those things I I walked into that's been one of the joys of my life. I I was in the Tetons a couple of years ago with my wife hiking and came across this log cabin that these guys were building, and there was a stack of rigid foam next to this log cabin, and I'm thinking, oh, somebody's doing something interesting here. They're doing a historic rehab, and there's a stack of rigid foam here. i got to go check this one out. So I I talked to one of the guys doing the work and to try to understand what they were doing and why, and took some pictures, and <laughs> took some pictures of the crawl space under the building, and it was sort of what I guessed it might be uh, with... Um, fiberglass and water, and um, a year later met with the folks in charge of that project and said, hey, this I have some concerns here. Do you want to listen to them? And to my joy, they said, yeah, hey, yeah, show us the pictures and talk about the concerns. And they said, oh, you seem to know what you're talking about. Why don't you come run a training course for us and develop it, and we'll teach it here. So, I now get to teach in August each year for the past three years at the Vanishing Treasures program, which is a, a group of folks in, uh, based out of the Tetons, Teton National Park, that focus on preserving historic structures. And for three days, we uh, talk about moisture dynamics in historic structures and new assemblies, and we do hands on. Um, testing at the facility and help them understand that moisture management is more than just keeping the rain out of the building. And, uh, most of the folks who attend, are sponges, they're, they want to learn, they're bright, we have a great time, and to the general public, the course is free, um, wow. so it's, it's a great opportunity for anyone who can get themselves to Teton National Park the last week of August
1: last week of August that's interesting that that sounds very interesting actually to me I we have a little construction uh, company too and my son does some construction I'm wondering w- with respect to trends in construction are you seeing a lot more people going to a continuous insulation on the exterior of the building as opposed to just insulating on the inside
0: well I assume Assuming you might know that the 2012 and 2015 codes for climate zones, at least six and seven, maybe five, I haven't looked lately, require you to do that. The 2012-2015 codes say, hey, cavity insulation alone isn't good enough. Get your act together and figure out how to do a continuous layer here, because... Yeah, the, the simple rule of thumb, Joe, is if, if you can make, in a, in a cold climate, if you can make the basement R20, the walls R35 to 40 and the attic R60, you don't need a lot to heat this building. You need a good ventilation system at that point. And the real challenge for the builder is to evolve the cost-effective ways to reach those insulation values. And, you know, between Joe Steebrook's work and others of, telling people how to keep wind-driven rain out of the wall system, and manufacturers now telling you how to install the windows so the wall doesn't get wet. We, we've we made leaps and bounds in people understanding how to build what we used to call super-insulated super building, and DOE now calls net-zero-ready building because... Uh, You know, you put micro heating systems in these buildings and your air conditioning budget is low and, you know, you can put in a ton and a half heating cooling unit, call a mini split, and and you're done, other than adding an area heat exchanger.
1: When you talk to building owners about, you know, super insulated building, what, what kind of price range do you give them with respect to what the additional cost would be to go from traditional construction to going to a, a, a well insulated or super insulated building? Uh, three to 5%. Okay. Okay. That's not too bad at all. I, and, I th- and, and cost
0: savings. If if you're taking out a mortgage, you know, at three and a half percent to pay for the additional cost, your net annual savings is in that annual cost is a savings. Um, Because your heating bill is, your utility bill, your whole utility bill might be $500 instead of $3,000, depending on what crazy habits you may have.
1: (laughs) I mean, Cliff had what I thought was a very good question in here. You must have seen something on your site about creative and low-cost solutions to water intrusion. I wonder if you could comment on that.
0: Yeah, I was actually wondering <laughs> um, when you guys sent me the potential questions what he was thinking about and what he caught. We, uh, we the, the Water intrusion, I sort of break water intrusion down to three concepts. Um, is the site water managed? And I get that one from Terry Brennan. Uh, my experience with buildings is if you don't manage the site water around the building, It's going to flow into the building. You're going to have moisture problems in the building. So site water management is the first one you'd always go after. And the second one is groundwater management. Hopefully no one's dumping the roof gutters into the perimeter drains. It's not what they're intended to do. Roof water should be dumped um, away from the bowels of the building so it doesn't cause problems in your basement or crawl space or slab on grade. And in an old building that doesn't have some kind of a vapor barrier, capillary break underneath the concrete, um, life is a a challenge. You end up trying to figure out, can I put some positive side moisture barrier on top of that concrete or let it breathe with a, a finish? Oh, in the uh, worst case, I'm stuck, and what I really need is a fifteen hundred dollar dehumidifier to keep the building dry because I can't keep the moisture from coming into it. Hmm.
1: And I, I was, when we talk about um, moisture intrusion, what you, you're also doing a presentation. I think it was at IAQA on advanced indoor air quality diagnostics. Oh, with uh, a building with a suspected disease, I don't know if that was a moisture issue or not, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could give listeners a little summary of what you discussed in that presentation.
0: Be happy to. That that was a whole day workshop that Steve and I actually got to present at the uh, Air Quality Association meeting in Las Vegas in February, and we've had the privilege over the years of um, working on two. Uh public buildings, government buildings, so we could talk about them, and in fact, all the information is published on the internet and various sites um, These were buildings that uh, clearly had elevated disease levels, and we were hired by the owner to figure out so what's oddball about this building that's causing people to have elevated disease levels and um in one of the buildings, they had tried to manage moisture for years and essentially were still unsuccessful at doing that. So they had uh, mold growing on all the duck liner downstream with the cooling coils and uh, water coming into the building behind the brick veneer any time it poured. And um, The interesting thing about that particular building is they also had uh, picture six photocopiers, about 20 feet long and four feet deep, um, printing checks and tax forms um, and, and dumping the emissions from those rooms throughout the building. Mm. Uh, so they had a VOC source that was unrecognized. Um, so that building has been somewhat fixed. I'm not involved with it since... The recommendations were made how to fix it. We were asked by the state uh, whether it had to be evacuated or fixed, and we told them how to fix it. And I'm actually told it right now. Eight years later, they're in the process of potentially vacating it. So that's not... Uh, although I think we did a good job at telling them what was wrong and how to fix it, it it's it's probably a building waiting for someone else to purchase hmm. Another building we got to talk about that had uh, extreme case of sarcoidosis, which is a granuloma disease. Um, We spent three months doing sophisticated detective work, trying to figure out why was this building making people ill, uh, or why did the illness rate in this building seem so prevalent compared to the normal population. And we ended up figuring out that there were a couple of things that were oddball in this building. Because you've got to figure if people have elevated disease rates in buildings, there's something oddball going on. Uh, one of the oddball things was 130 heat pumps with food-grade Tygon tubing for uh, traps for the drain lines from these heat pumps. And um, NIOSH ended up sampling those drain lines and writing... Uh, two papers now about it for uh, all the crap they found growing in the drain lines. so when we used to use copper for drain lines the condensate water copper's as a natural fungicide and bactericide and you have to work hard to get something to grow in a copper line. but when it's plastic, whether it's the plastic trap under your shower or uh, food grade tygon on a drain line, it grows stuff very readily. Um so people sometimes learn things by doing. And the other issue with that building was that there was a boiler stack with a oil fired boiler that never worked right that happened to be twenty feet below the air intake of the building and any time the wind blew in the right direction it got to blow boiler fumes into the building and it back puffed into the hallway and You can see staining on the studs, ghosting on the studs in the building from the soot deposits from the oil burner.
1: I've got two follow-ups. One from a listener asking, does sarcoidosis have a recognized cause?
0: Uh, I'm not aware of a recognized cause. I can only tell you that we found a very... Different anomalies in those that particular building of what you might consider normal. I'm guessing there are health experts out there, and the folks in NIOSH would be happy to talk to the caller about that particular disease.
1: And and the second follow-up I have is uh, on the traps and and the food grade. Um, what was Tygon? Plastic Tigon, yeah. What this was this
0: stuff you put? It's stuff you deliver beverages in.
1: <laughs> well, how did that, part- that that microbial growth in that Tygon tubing get back into the building?
0: Uh, we ended up proving through once those traps dried out, because you're in a heating and cooling climate, the air passage through those pieces of Tygon distributed material any way you'd like in any way you can imagine hmm. uh, depending on how the units were running, push-pull. Um, that's all written up because someone needs to understand it. Um, in some ways, it's no different than what they learned in Japan with some of the uh, the flushing of toilets and different pressures and the spreading of disease in high-rises. Um, we don't think of drain lines as air conveyance systems but we know that clearly know that a condensate line can end up as part of an air conveyance system no different than a, a utility trench in a school that has old steam pipes in it and mold growing and asbestos can end up as part of the air distribution system
1: and we're, we're running a little short on time but i've got one final question cliff before i i do that can you uh, do you have any final questions you wanted to ask um
3: yeah i i did um bill there was you know on the website um i, I thought it was very interesting there was a project that you did that involved a bunch of residences that um i guess had, I guess there was ground contamination, perhaps, from a dry-cleaning plant that leaked. And uh, Can you just comment on how you diagnosed it and, and what you did there?
0: Sure. We did um, headspace analysis of the materials underneath whatever floors were in the building, and then we essentially used radon reduction techniques to capture the material and Distributed outside at a level that was acceptable to the agency we were working with to keep it below background levels outside, and to keep it from coming into the house. It's uh, you know radon, as you may know, is one of the easy ground source radon is one of the easiest pollution problems in a house to fix, and that all the techniques that work for radon tend to work for any other volatile organic compound that's under the building. Be- thank you before we go and guys please, i'm happy to do another session with you at some point in the future if you'd like
1: i'd, I'd love to do that because there's there's a lot of things we're, we're not going to get a chance to talk about today but uh, before we go is there anything that well first any tips that you would give to people who are you know newer people just now entering this world of indoor air quality and building science and building diagnostics what kind of tip would you give them with respect to how to how to proceed in that in that uh, field?
0: Well, the the key certainly is educate oneself as much as possible within all the topics of the field. I mean I'm, I and we are sort of an anomaly. I mean, I have a master's degree in mechanical engineering, but I got to cut my teeth on indoor air quality at Harvard School of Public Health. 25 years ago when I was asked to go into people's homes in the Harvard Six City Study and measure pollutants that hadn't been measured before. So I had a wonderful learning opportunity we had to invent a lot of our own stuff. Um, But the other comment I would make is always go into any situation with an open mind. Don't think you know the answer before you get started because there's always wonderful surprises lurking for you to that things didn't work the way you thought they might be working.
1: And I'm wondering how um, valuable your background in mechanical engineering you feel was. I mean, it seems to me that if they're not in that area or not really good with mechanical systems, they should at least hook up or line with someone who is
0: yeah I think indoor air quality problem solving is an interdisciplinary field. You need medical health professionals when you know when you need them and you know how to find them. and you probably need someone who understands moisture movement um, through materials and air dynamics in buildings as to where air comes from and goes to. And the one advantage to the background in mechanical engineering is, the air conveyance system is if it's not part of the problem, it's usually part of the solution. So classically ultimately developing solutions that work, one needs to understand what the ventilation system and the air heating and cooling system is or isn't doing and how you might manipulate it to do what you need.
1: And and you you come from that mechanical background and then I know you had Steve on the on a, you know, as a part of Turner that has more of an industrial hygiene background, I guess that's also something else that you know probably has helped you along the way having having someone or a group of people with that background as well.
0: Yeah, that's correct, and we're always looking for young guys who want an opportunity.
1: Before we go, Bill, anything you'd like to add before we call it a day? And uh, we'll definitely take you up on getting you back here for a future show.
0: No, my comment would be, even though, guys, I don't discipline myself to pay attention to you, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and look forward to doing it again. And I salute you for your long-term devotion to this topic.
1: Well, thank you. We, We appreciate that a great deal. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we roll?
0: Nope, I'm good.
1: All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Bill Turner. Uh, Turner, building science and diagnostics, great stuff. Look forward to having Bill back again. And uh, for those of you that have the opportunity to get up to the Northeast IAQ and Energy Conference, that'll be the beginning of May. I think it's like May 2nd and 3rd. Bill will be doing a half-day session up there as well, so we want to encourage listeners to... Get up there if you can. Uh, Maine's beautiful, uh, gorgeous that time of year as well. So I look forward, I'm going to be there and look forward to seeing some of you there. I also want to thank our co, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff lotnik Great job, Cliff, as always. Thanks for the help. And uh, John, you got to have faith at the controls, as always. Great job. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us. Oh, by the way, next Friday we've got an interview I've been trying to get for years now. We finally got Tina Raponin uh, from the University of Cincinnati. She's going to come in. We're going to talk a little bit about her work with microbial issues and uh, look forward to that interview. So come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio.
2: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed, saying thanks for listening.
1: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get
0: lucky just about anywhere.